Hi, this is Ashley at the Recovery Radio Network, and I need your help. I'm trying to raise money this week to help defray our operating costs. My storage and network costs have skyrocketed recently, and Recovery Radio needs your help. Can you help me? If you can, go to recoveryradio.net and click the donate button. It's just that easy. I appreciate any help you can give, and you should know that your contribution is fully tax-deductible under the law. Oh, boy, what a nice introduction. Good morning, everybody. My name's Sandy. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm really happy to be here. I didn't know if I was going to make it or not, and uh, it's, it's, I just miss all this. I miss seeing you all, and uh, I miss... Um, forcing myself to think about AA things and ideas, and this is the forum where it happens. And so I'm glad that um, I was able to get up here. But I'm thinking of canceling some of the ones in the future (laughs) that are further away. So we're just going to organize more conventions in Florida. I think Lee's got one with Bob and I in the first weekend in November in Orlando. So we're going to just keep adding them up and then just jump in a car. And um, you can come in on a stretcher then. (laughs) So anyway, before I get to the whatever that God's plan name of the talk is, And I never know what's going to come out of that. But I ran across some things that just caught my attention. I was reading the, uh, and I wanted to make a comment on it. I was reading the 24-hour day book uh, about a week ago. And um, this caught my eye. This was written about 55 years ago. I didn't know they were writing about diversity 55 years ago. That's why it caught my eye. One of the finest things about AA is the diversity of its membership. We come from all walks and stations of life. All types and classes of people are represented in an AA group. Being different from each other in certain ways, we can each make a different contribution to the whole. Some of us are weak in one respect but strong in another. AA can use the strong points of all its members and can disregard the weaknesses. AA is strong not only because we all have the same problem, but also because of the diversified talents of its members. Can each contribute his part? Do I recognize the good points in all my group's members? And then to kind of reinforce that, when uh, Bill was writing the third tradition, and you remember that was the membership uh, tradition, and we had uh, all the groups out of fear were making up rules, you know, like who could come in their group because they were worried that someone would come in who could ruin the whole thing and then they'd all get drunk and die. <laughs> and um, so he, Bill went through the, those and then they, they got thrown out. And then he said, how could we then guess that all those fears were to prove groundless? How could we know that Thousands of these sometimes frightening people were to make astonishing recovery and become our greatest workers and intimate friends. Was it credible that AA was to have a divorce rate far lower than average? 
Could we then foresee that troublesome people were to become our principal teachers of patience and tolerance? Could any of them imagine a society which would include every conceivable kind of character and cut across every barrier of race, creed, politics, and language with ease? And then finally, he just wraps it up. Uh, so the hand of providence gave us the sign that any alcoholic is a member of our society when he said so. And so we find this um, amazing value in diversity because, as the big book says, we are people who wouldn't ordinarily mix. And being in that situation has contributed greatly to my sobriety, my humility, in that everyone, when you arrive here as a self-centered alcoholic, is expert at judging people. You don't even have to talk to them. <laughs> and you know you don't want to meet them. You, you know what I'm talking about? <clears throat> and when they share, why listen? What the heck could they have possibly offer? And then as time goes on, you find this alleged street person, every time he talks, he has something that's brilliant. And you're sitting there with your jaw dropped down. And, and I think it's just wonderful. So that was diversity 55 years ago. Today, it takes a whole different thing. We're diverse in, by having different groups. And the groups themselves aren't diverse. We've subdivided up into people who do ordinarily mix. And it's a strange phenomenon, isn't it? You know what I mean? And I helped start the pilot's um, special purpose group, and now I go, what the hell did we start that for? Because <laughs> all my pilot friends, we had this little thing at National Airport, and it was so cool. we sit there and talk about flying, and the rest of them stopped going to all other meetings. And just went to that. So anyway, the only it just caught my eye that um, the value of diversity is, occurs in the group itself, not in the overall society, because we, we're not at that meeting. And so that was one. Um, you, as you get closer to 50 years, you, you're getting ready to start commenting on everything that's going on in AA. So you wait if I live that long. Um, okay, then one other thing was, um, this is, this is such a moving scene, uh, concerns the meeting of, uh, Bill Wilson and Father Dowling. Uh, over in Tampa, maybe a year and a half ago, we started a history meeting, which is, just started by accident. We had, we had such a small group that if we had a topic, we could go around the room and it would be quarter of and we were finished. So we said to somebody, why don't, why don't each of us come up with some topic and talk for 10 minutes or 15 minutes? And then we could fill up the time. Well, the first person that came in talked about Sister Ignatia. <laughs> and we were expecting a tradition or something. <laughs> Everybody loved it. And so that went on for about a year where the members would uh, go home. And even if they're brand new, they went online. They would look up the Rockefeller dinner. They'd look up different characters in AA history. And it got so exciting that we decided to do a book study. 
And uh, of all the history books, this is most people will agree that the Not God by Ernie Kurtz is by far the um, most detailed. It's a Ph.D. when he was at Harvard. Can you imagine Harvard approved a Ph.D. on Alcoholics Anonymous? <laughs> and the New York office gave him access to everything, all of the Bill's letters and everything. So here you have... A history as seen by an outside observer instead of us writing our own history. I don't know about you, but if I'm writing my own history, I may leave out a few embarrassing things. <laughs> I'm, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but uh, <laughs> Ernie Kurtz certainly ran across things I never heard of. And so, so I'm going to just read a few. Um, paragraphs out of here leading into, because I, I'm sure a lot of you, I was just astounded how he portrayed this. And the time period he's picking up is 1940. So the big book has only been out a year. Bill and Lois were thrown out, of, you know, they lost the um, townhouse in Brooklyn. And for the past year, he was using borrowed cars. He lived at 70 different AA members' homes. And they gave him an allowance. They would take up collections and give him $20 a week to keep AA going. So things were kind of rough. <clears throat> and the big book wasn't selling. Nobody heard of AA. They had bills to be paid. And suddenly some good news started coming in. The Cleveland Plain Dealer, a newspaper in Cleveland, started doing a series of articles about AA that Clarence Snyder had planted. And the Liberty Magazine came out. And um, the Gabriel Heater radio show, when the Irishman got on the show and personal interest story told about AA and the book. They were just trying to sell the book because this was going to support us. And... Um, then John Rockefeller announced that he was going to throw a dinner for AA. And when Bill and the drunks attended the meeting, Bill figured conservatively there was $4 billion in that room. Because <laughs> all the bankers and big shots from New York City had responded when John D. sent an invitation that they better show up over there. And uh, so he was waiting till they all talked, and um, Dr. Bob talked, and Fosdick talked, and Bill talked, and then Nelson Rockefeller came in. His father was sick, and he got up and praised AA. He said, my father's been studying this since it started. We sent people out to Akron to look at it. This, my father feels, is one of the most amazing um benefits to mankind that he has ever seen. But it doesn't need money. And so, <laughs> so the money went out the window and Bill was uh, got a little more depressed. <laughs> they did set up a small fund to save Dr. Bob's house in Akron and to give them another $30 a month to keep this thing going. 
About that time, so I'm just setting the stage for his mental condition, which was tough. About that time, his sponsor, Ebby, got drunk. His right-hand man, who helped him write the big book, he was with him through everything. Hank Parkhurst got drunk, and they had a falling out. And Hank went up to Cleveland, spread a lot of terrible rumors about Bill, that he was stealing money, and he was a terrible guy. And um, there appeared a huge publicity thing for about Alcoholics Anonymous. There was a pitcher for the Cleveland Indians named Bob Feller. Some of you sports guys know he was one of the first guys to throw 100 miles an hour, young 19-year-old. And there was a catcher who, when he was sober, was perfect for Bob Feller, he, Raleigh Helmsley. It's, but Raleigh was better known as being a drunk and his escapades, and the reporters would go to the game, and then they'd go out and cover Raleigh, what he was going to do after the game, because <laughs> he'd get in a fight in a bar and this, and he was setting things on fire. And he, I mean, he, he was just a character that they knew there was another story after the game. All of a sudden, there are no stories, and his performance is going way up, and so they, they're interviewing him, and they're going, Raleigh, what's going on? And he said, well, I joined Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm sober, and I'm doing great. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. Well, this went in all the papers in the sports section. So the New York office got as many, almost as many inquiries as from the Jack Alexander, or maybe a third. And it was really exciting, but it was creating a conflict in this newly adopted tradition of anonymity. And what are we going to do about it? And so I want to just read a few things. This is what Bill did about it. Everybody's going to watch. What's Bill going to do about this? Um, to the astonishment of virtually all in New York, Bill escaped the dilemma by grasping at both its horns. Inwardly, he cherished the warm glow of the Rockefeller contact, which honored him as virtually the sole founder and the copious praise of the post-dinner publicity. Hence, he responded to the Hemsley notoriety by taking to the road, courting the press in every city he visited, giving interviews and encouraging pictures. In several cities, especially at the beginning, the local membership of AEA, mostly new adherents who had been attracted by the Helmsley publicity, relished and encouraged his efforts. Soon, many of the newcomers were celebrating their sobriety by contacting reporters and getting their picture <laughs> in the paper. So the old-timers came, called Bill aside, and this is the first time we hear this term. He had better watch himself because he sure as hell was acting like a man on a dry drunk. And so the dry drunk term came in, and it was um, the three symptoms were, your own advice seems almost spiritual and flawless. <laughs> <laughs> and your, 
you like the controversy. You're sort of feeding on all of this, and membership is upset, and this is that, and <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. And then comes the crash, deep depression, into the depths of despair, when you suddenly realize what you're doing. Bill and Lois had just moved into the two shabby little rooms in the clubhouse in New York. They lived up over the club. And there was, you know, three or four pieces of furniture, and that was about it. And he was up there probably as depressed as he's ever been, just thinking over, how am I going to get out of this? What's going to run? And then the story says, it would seem that on a chill, rain-pelting early winter evening in late 1940, as Wilson almost tangibly felt himself being wrapped ever more tightly in the gloomy pall of spiritual darkness. And then he talked about how bad he felt when suddenly the building's janitor came up and said, there's someone downstairs that wants to see you. And he said, oh, some drunk wants to talk, and I don't feel like it. I'm a... But force of habit made him say yes. <clears throat> the uninvited caller shuffled into the room, and Bill sensed in dismay that this bundled, partially crippled man wasn't even an alcoholic. Probably just some bum looking for a handout. Wilson guessed to himself until the stranger's raincoat came unbuttoned and revealed the Roman collar around his neck. Father Dowling introduced himself as a Jesuit priest from St. Louis who, as editor of the Catholic publication, was interested in the parallels he had intuited between the 12 steps of AA and the exercise of St. Ignatius, the spiritual discipline of his Jesuit order. And he showed great delight in being with Bill. And as Bill sat there, the energy out of Father Dowling started to light the room up. And he started looking over at this man, and he just started feeling better because of the energy coming out of him. That evening, Father Ed began sharing with Wilson an understanding of the spiritual life that then and subsequently seemed always to speak to Bill's condition. And he realized he had a new sponsor. And he began, but it was only now, as this evening with Dowling wore on, that the man who had written AA's Fifth Step came to feel that he himself was finally taking his fifth. He told Dowling not only what he had done and had left undone, he went on to share with his new sponsor the thoughts and feelings behind those actions and omissions. He told of his high hopes and plans and spoke about his anger, despair, and mounting frustration. In pain, Bill asked if there was ever to be any satisfaction. The priest almost snapped back. Never, never any. And he continued in a gentler tone, describing as divine dissatisfaction that which would keep Wilson going, always reaching out for unattainable goals. For only by so reaching would one attain what hidden from him were God's goals. This acceptance that his dissatisfaction, his very thirst could be divine was one of Dowling's great gifts to Bill Wilson 
and through him to Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I finished that, I realized that this was the heart of the changes that came about in step six and seven and the 12 and 12. That this fact that we must struggle and strive and never get there it was a new concept to Alcoholics Anonymous. I've always compared the two by saying the big book is progress, not perfection, and the 12 and 12 is progress towards perfection. That we're going to have to lift our eyes up there. I'm going to see how close I can come to establishing perfect contact with my higher power. And I'm never going to get there, but I'm never going to stop. That's a, a, a total different uh, outlook on it. And I've just felt the power that um, happened between the two of them and how lucky we are that this uh, priest saw a connection because other priests who were sober alcoholics, who were Jesuits, they didn't see it as Father Dowling did. So maybe you enjoyed that and maybe you didn't, but um, I, I was very moved by it. When, when we were studying that, because we have, we are blessed with all kinds of people who have contributed to AA, Sister Ignatia, and just the board of directors of the Rockefellers, who became on our board of the Alcoholic Foundation. Even Jack Alexander, after he wrote the article in the Saturday Evening Post, he became the equivalent of a trustee and was on the board. And so we had a lot of help that, to me, shows evidence of what God's plan was for Alcoholics Anonymous, which you only know after it happens. You can't know it ahead of time. <laughs> you can think you can. If God loved me, it would turn out this way. And so we get into, I don't know why I did, but I, there's two, two or three quotes in the big book about the subject. Now, this is uh, page 100 in the big book where, where he's uh, working with others, and he's talking with the guy he's um, sponsoring. And then he says, the things which come to us when we just put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. And I think everybody has sort of that sense about what God's plan is, that it's better. Now, if you understand that, then you wouldn't be disappointed when your plan doesn't turn out. <laughs> and you sponsor after sponsor says, God's got something better in store for you. And then you find out and... and under his breath, he's saying, yeah, about four more months of suffering. <laughs> and then you're going to get the reward of four more months of suffering. But I don't think I'm going to tell you that yet. And so um, see to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. We all know that one. There's about ten of them, but I just got four. 
Follow the dictates of a higher power. This is also on page 100. And you will presently live in a new and wonderful world no matter what your present conditions, no matter what your present circumstances. And then the central fact, this is on page 25, and I, I just love this. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. Whenever I see that word, absolute certainty, I ask myself, where does faith fit in? And it doesn't. When I, when I have that sense, the absolute certainty that my Creator is in my heart, I'm temporarily in a spot that is almost like the jackpot. It's an awareness to such an extent that I call it certainty. There's a great deal of difference to that where we have faith that something like that's going to happen. But what does the, how does faith apply when it does happen? And I guess the best answer is when it goes away, we're going to have the faith that it'll come back. But there are things that happen in this, uh, in God's world that are um, if we can take them at face value as they happen to us, they should really give us a tremendous um, weapon to use against our ego when it comes up with doubt and fear and you're, you're no good, this isn't going to turn out right. When I first started in AA, I didn't want anything to do with God. I was like a lot of typical newcomers. I don't like the Lord's Prayer. I don't like praying. I don't like hearing about God. You know, all those things. And uh, people said to me, eventually you'll come to love that prayer. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. That's good. <laughs> and then, you know, I look back on some of the international conventions in New Orleans and Seattle, where we're all standing there, 50,000 people saying the Lord's Prayer. And I realized how wrong I was. How, what a mistake. And how awful it would have been if AA had been considerate of me <laughs> and changed AA so that it wasn't in conflict with me. It, what it would have done is killed me. It would have killed me with kindness. Because a spiritual life gives us the power to adjust to the world as it is instead of demanding that the world adjust to us, which is what we did before we got here. And we that's what willfulness is all about. If I wanted to, uh, if I didn't like somebody and I wanted to really hurt them, I would pray to God to make them 100% willful. That's it. That would be the... Everything would have to turn out their way or they'd be miserable. And, of course, the more willful you get, the less people want to go along because it's, you know, you become more obnoxious. 
And so one of the um, great things to start getting in touch with what today we're calling God's plan, I don't know what, there's many names, but to move from the material world into the spiritual world is willingness. Willingness is a decision to try something that you don't yet believe in and that you don't have evidence for. You've seen it in other people. And you just say to yourself, okay, I am going to have an open mind and I am going to get on my knees like my sponsor wants. And I'm going to say, God, please keep me sober. And then at night I'm going to get on my knees and say, thank you for keeping me sober. And I'm going to feel like a fool. Because I don't know who I'm praying to. I don't know anything about this stuff. I just I just said, run, run, run. So if you're new and you feel like a fool, perhaps you haven't heard of the prayer that started AA. It was said by Bill Wilson in Towns Hospital. Because his buddy, Ebby, had told him that this Oxford group thing, there was this God and it helped him. And um, Bill didn't believe anything he was saying, but he could not take his eye off of Ebby. His whole being had been transformed. And that was the proof that made Bill have an open mind. And so when it came to him and he reached that lowest level, this is the prayer he said. If there is a God, how's that for a start to her prayer? <laughs> you won't hear that one in many churches. <laughs> if there is a God, please show yourself to me. So there's the whole prayer. If there is a God. So if you feel funny, you're just doing what Bill was doing. I don't know, but I'm desperate. I'm very desperate. And it's so funny because he had one of the rare white light instantly transforming experiences where he was uh, free from the alcohol obsession forever. The funny thing was, and it's hard, I have, some of you read um, Varieties of Religious Experience, William James. It's in the big book. It's the only book that's mentioned in the big book. And I can't to, to this day know if it's conference approved, if it's mentioned in the big book. <laughs> that would be a good debate in a home group, wouldn't it? Well, it didn't come out of New York. It didn't say anything. I know, but it's in the big book itself. So <laughs> that preceded conference approved. It was. <laughs> I think you could make a good case, and it would depend how tough your delegate is. And <laughs> anyway, if you if you try to read it, you'll realize it is the hardest damn book to read. <laughs> This guy was such an intellectual, he spoke all these different languages. He was given talks at Edinburgh University on religion, and he had never studied it before, and suddenly he's a genius. Um, 
He practically single-handedly started Harvard, straightened it all out and got professors and all that. So William James, somebody, I think, Evie brought it to him the second time he was there, and he read it in Dr. in Towns Hospital. It's, it's for me to think that somebody with a weak sobriety could read <laughs> varieties is astounding. <clears throat> but, of course, they read a lot more back then than we do now. We just get our phone out and look at it. <laughs> the reason I'm bringing that up is this is where we establish one of the reasons that Alcoholics Anonymous works so well compared to any other organization. And it turns out as... Um, William James studied this phenomenon of religion over the centuries, that there was a particular thing that happened throughout this, and these were sudden conversions. These were people who were, on the one hand, totally depressed, everything was terrible, blah, 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 and then in an instant, they were totally at peace with themselves. They understood God. They understood their place in the universe. And they just served as shining examples. And the only thing they had in common, they were desperate. They had, life had dealt them such a terrible hand that they were at the bottom in the darkest pit, just like alcoholics. And so the reason that AA has more spiritual awakenings than probably any other organization is that we corner the market on desperation. <laughs> this is, this is not a random sample here. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I know AA is attractive and has gotten a little better reputation, but people aren't faking it to get in. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just want to get it on my resume, and I'm in AA. <laughs> so that's not happening, so we still... Um, and in spite of the desperation, we find that pride and the ego it, will still resist. Um, giving up being in charge. Giving up as the, the first line in the 12 and 12 is just brilliant on the first step. You know, the, who cares to admit complete defeat? It's the doorway in. There's no other doorway into the spiritual life. Complete defeat. We're willing to admit that we're beaten. We're willing to admit that we got problems, but complete defeat, there's a big difference, a huge difference. And I'll tell you the example I'd like to use. At the end of World War II, when we were trying to get Japan to surrender so that we didn't have to invade Japan and lose three more million uh, soldiers and Marines, they came up with the atomic bomb dropped it on Hiroshima, and then went to the Japanese military and the emperor and said, we've got others. We want you to surrender. 
And they came back and said, okay, okay, but we have a few conditions. We want to keep a small military. We want the emperor to have this and that. That was not complete defeat. In order to go from almost complete defeat to complete defeat, they had to drop another one on Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And then finally came unconditional surrender. So just think of our own lives. We're we're willing to almost <laughs> give it all up to our group or our sponsor. Almost. Almost you miss. You end up drinking again. You end up, you almost surrendered. And you almost worked the steps and you almost found God and you almost got sober and you almost, almost. So that's how crucial that last little part of step one is to the whole program. Remember we say that's the one we got to work 100%? What they mean is the surrender has to be unconditional, the white flag. I'll do whatever you tell me. Okay, I want you to go apologize to your mother-in-law. I'll do everything except <laughs> apologize to my... <laughs> we already put a condition on, you know what I mean? So unconditional. When we're talking about God's plan, it's there all the time. It's just that we're not aware of it. Uh, that's what spiritual growth entails, is picking up another level of awareness so that we become aware of something that was there all along. And generally that's a personal realization of our own creator. Like it says in the promises, we suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. <clears throat> why didn't that happen four months earlier? Why? Why did it, why was it seven months? Why was it a year? Why was it happen to this guy one month? Remember that sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. It will always materialize if we work for it. That's a pretty good guarantee. This awareness of your own creator will always materialize if we work for it. So we have to continue to be willing and we have to stay surrendered. It's a very challenging thing because all of our ego is built to take charge again. Okay, I got my job back. My family's talking to me. I'm sleeping in the big bed. <laughs> things are getting better. Time for me to take over again and become the man or the woman that I'm supposed to be and get going and get on with all of this. And in the haste of that, it, f it flows over into our spiritual life, and we start doing it there. Time for me to take over. Thank you, God. I appreciate what you've done. I mean, I will always appreciate what you've done. I'll be grateful to you forever, but i got to get on with my life. And um, I have no idea if you like business or not, but i got a business to run, and so... I'll see ya. 
and we start going into a depression and, we, and things really become difficult. As our sobriety unfolds, I know mine did. I had two years and I got thrown out of the Marine Corps, which was my career fighter pilot, been there for 14, 15 years, and now it's gone. And I had six kids to support, and I didn't have any money saved up. And uh, I've been to a meeting every night for two years, and I concluded, God did this. I mean, who else did it? It wasn't me. <laughs> and so I would have conversations. Didn't you notice I was going to a meeting every night? Haven't I stayed sober? Did I do everything my sponsor? What the hell kind of deal is this? This is your plan for me, is to get thrown out. And they needed pilots. It was during Vietnam. I mean, for God's sakes, what the, this is. And three months later, the uh, team that I worked for out of Quantico, we, we did presentations on the Marine Corps, and they were going to do one in Denver, and they flew into a mountain and killed everybody on the team. And if I had had my way, and it had been fair, I would have been promoted and would have been on the plane. So I read that in the Washington Post, this plane, this team had been killed, and I'm, as soon as I read it, I knew that God knew I was reading it. That was the first thing I had. It was like, <laughs> he, could, he could see me reading it. And I just felt squeezed so tight there. And I think I said, well, if you just told me that was going to happen, I wouldn't have been. I wouldn't have been crying about <laughs> So what am I going to say about those things? It's just, um, it was amazing. Just amazing to me that that was the way that happened. So then I said to myself, as I'm evaluating this, I said, well, then it was definitely God's plan that I stay alive and continue on in AA and keep doing the best that I can. But that really wasn't his plan. I mean, if, if I gave the, what I think the answer is, then this whole talk could be given in one sentence. But I have jokes and stuff, so I like to spread it out <laughs> a little bit. I don't think God's interested in whether I'm in the Marine Corps or not in the Marine Corps or, you know, I'm married or not married or my father or not. If you study our literature, it becomes clear that what God wants is for us to get closer to him. That's it. That's the whole deal. There's all the other things that I thought were so essential elements really don't have any relevance. They just are, that's how life is turning out. And that's so for myself, when certain things happened, like when my daughter was murdered. 
I could look at that like, well, why would God do this or that? He didn't have anything to do with it. He wanted me to stay close to him and everything would be all right. And that's what I did. And I was able to forgive and everything all in the same day. And that's when I got the realization that I'm just here in order to try and get back as close to God as I was before I got here. This is my own feeling about that. And one of the lines in our big book is, and I can't even remember where it is, but it's a very short thing. It says, we were reborn. It was describing a process. And they said, to sum it up, we were reborn. So the old alcoholic, Jane or Fred or whoever it is, has to die. Now, when we say die, what dies? Our old ideas. That's what dies. Because that's what constitutes who we are. We're not talking about a physical body. We're talking about the construct that exists in our head and in our soul. And the reason it dies is that none of those ideas were true. They were our perception of what happened, which in most cases wasn't even close to what really happened. And I've had this stuff, you know, you, you, you end up with a better childhood. We were, we were talking about that. I ended up with a whole different thing within the fighter squadron I was in. The people felt entirely different than I thought. And as the truth was revealed later on, then I could throw away the old ideas. And I said, geez, I had that wrong. I had it wrong. I had it wrong. I had it wrong. Chuck Chamberlain used to say his favorite thing was to find something else he was wrong about. He just loved it, because then you throw it away. You just get rid of it, because it's in there. It's like some little tiny part in your engine that isn't working right. It's not shutting the engine down, but it's just not working right, and it's just, it's there. And when you think about it, that really is exciting. And yet, the first time we had to admit we were wrong was like a federal case. You remember that? Remember? <laughs> How difficult it was to admit you were wrong. It was like my sponsor boxed me into a corner and I'm going, yeah, yeah, okay, 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 you're right, Bill. And he said, no, you're wrong. I said, well, it's, it's the same thing. Well, let me hear you say it. I couldn't even get it out of my throat. I'm, I am wrong. And now it's such a freeing thing. Wow, I was wrong about that. This guy's really a good guy. Wow, isn't that nice? And it's just it's very exciting. So that whole step about when we're wrong promptly admitted is, is so freeing. Once the ego isn't there trying to pretend that there's nothing for me to admit that I'm wrong about because I never am wrong, you know, that that place. When I think of the term conscious contact, when we look at our steps, the 12th step tells us that there's one result we're looking for, a spiritual awakening. It doesn't say having had nine items, one of them a spiritual awakening as the result of our steps. It just says 
having had a spiritual awakening as the result of our steps. So the whole point of Alcoholics Anonymous is spiritual awakening. And this is a gift. This occurs who knows when, who knows where. Sometimes people say that it's very closely connected with the ninth step. A lot of people have reported when they finished making all their amends, there was this tremendous sense of their own creator. Others, it happened under different circumstances. But those events that doesn't just happen once, we can have other spiritual awakenings or experiences. And those, again, are randomly determined. They just I've, I had more in the 38 to 41 year period of sobriety than all my other years put together. So figure that one out. But we are instructed on how to maintain conscious contact, which is, to me, the equivalent of picking up a phone and the dial tone is there. If you pick up the phone and the dial tone isn't there, you know something's wrong. The connection isn't working. But as long as it's there, you have connection with whatever's producing that dial tone. And that's how I feel about maintaining conscious contact with God through prayer and meditation. It, it can boil down as the years go on to simply taking a few breaths and just sitting quietly until I can feel the presence. It, it's not a complicated thing. It's just, since God is everywhere and he's everything, it's not like you have to go to India or something like that. It's just <laughs> taking the time and practicing a little bit so that you, you're just checking. You know, it's like if you're walking with your five-year-old child, you're checking and you look around and you check and you, you know, and you know he's there. And that's how, and you just get good at keeping track of that. And the same thing can be done with our own creator. We can go through the day constantly checking that we're together. It is a, one of the trademarks of spirituality is simplicity. Bill defined Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a great, in a letter, he said, Alcoholics Anonymous is an utter simplicity which encases a complete mystery. So we have this simplicity. Everything's so simple. I mean, in our, our statement, keep it simple. If you want to practice this, it, it, it's, these are things that are very practical. The next time at a discussion meeting, after you've commented, think to yourself how you could have covered everything you wanted to say in half the time. Do you follow what I'm saying? There's a bunch of words that didn't need to be used. And next time, try to do that. And then the next time, try and get it down. See if you can get it down to two sentences. Cover the whole thing in two sentences. 
I try to get the people I sponsor to do that. I tell them <laughs> it's very difficult with lawyers. Um, I tell them it's called spiritually showing off. And they're, oh, it's, oh, okay. I think I'll simplify, simplify. So we're getting rid of everything that isn't necessary in this sentence. We're getting rid of. So just look at the, it works, it really does. I mean, how can you improve on that? And so as you practice simplicity, eliminating things that just don't need to be done in the spiritual world, eliminating extras, and becoming more efficient at maintaining conscious contact. We're in, we are at the heart of God's plan, which is that we will go through life together. You will never do anything on your own. Never, never, never become self-sufficient. At all costs, do not become self-sufficient. Use God for everything. Sometimes, and then the ego will go, well, I use God for things that I can't do, and then the things I can do myself, I do on my own. I said, God will be glad to help you with the things you can do on your own. It's just a way of... Our ego is specializes in leaving God out. If I could come up with a some way of running my life and leave God out, my ego would be thrilled. It would just look at me. I'm no hands, you know, no feet. Just. <laughs> so I get back to the great line that Chuck Chamberlain had, who I've got to know and um, really considered it was an honor to spend some time with him. And, of course, his quote is, there's only one problem that includes all problems, and that's conscious separation from God. No matter what problem you have, it's not that problem. It's that you no longer are connected to God. There's no dial tone. And it's manifesting itself. Well, I'm nervous about an interview. I'm whatever it is. No. And then there's one solution that includes all solutions, and that's conscious contact. And as we're getting near the end of the hour, I just always have loved the diagram that Chuck uses to explain separation. He draws a big circle on a blackboard and he said, this is the universe. This is everything that there is. This is God and everything there is in existence is in this circle. Okay? And then he makes a little dot one inch outside the circle. He said, this is the self-centered alcoholic. He exists in addition to everything in the universe. <laughs> He's in a separate world from the universe. And he wonders why he's lonely, things aren't working too well. 
It doesn't make sense. He looks around, can't make sense out of life. So how could you live in addition to everything in the universe? You just make up a story that I exist in a separate world from everybody else and believe it. And that's when we hold on. Those are the ideas that we hold on to, sometimes with a death grip. Because if we let go of all this, that person is going to die. And that world will no longer exist. And you will be part of God. But it's terrifying. And one of the things that we have to get used to is that death is a very positive thing. It is, it, you know, there's birth and there's death. The biggest cause of death is birth. <laughs> there's no, <laughs> there's no bigger cause. And if life is wonderful, then death is wonderful squared. And that's what St. Francis said. It is by dying that we awaken to life eternal. So the plan is for us to become aware that we're eternal. That that, that is, and as it sinks in and we become aware of that, we live in a different world. We're no longer in that one we made up with all those ideas that are so wrong. And we rip those ideas out sometimes one at a time in order that the truth can be revealed. And that's the way, of course, the big book ends. More will be revealed. More will be revealed. But it can't be revealed if we're not tuned in, if we're not connected. And so if we sit around going, well, nothing ever gets revealed to me, well, are you working on maintaining the connection, the conscious contact, which is all 11-step material, which um, we've got a lot of great speakers that talk about that subject, and um, we'll leave it for another day. We're at the end of the time. I've enjoyed being here. I'm so glad I was able to get up, and I thank you all for coming. <laughs>